Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. A knock, a notification, two minutes. He was five foot ten in height, but he seemed taller. He was built rangy and long-limbed with big hands. The big Afro hairdo looked like a halo when he was backlit. He had a tendency to walk quickly. After all, he had been in motion all of his life. Less than a year ago, he was a nobody. Now, he was headlining the Monterey Pomp Festival. He kept a dollar bill crumpled up inside his boot, a reminder of the grinding poverty he endured as a boy and as a young adult. Groupies and roadies, journalists and hangers-on, he gave them a quick, friendly nod as he went by. Someone he knew a little better, he might favor with a flash of his shy, disarming smile. But he said little. Just a few more steps now. A sidelong glance at the other guys. Can you feel it? Are you ready? Two quick nods in return. All business now. Yeah, we're ready. Okay, good. Pause. Breathe it in. Buzz of the crowd. Hum of the martial stacks set on standby. He was left-handed, but he carried a right-handed Fender Stratocaster guitar strung upside down. His father would curse him and beat him for doing anything left-handed. Sometimes his father would beat him for nothing. Nothing at all. Keep quiet. Stay out of the way. Don't you sass me, nun boy. Another pause. Breathe it out. Power up. Strap the upside-down strat. One more quick glance around. It's time.
Rothermuth, the show. Hey, friends, fellow diggers, welcome back to episode 12 of the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast. Christian Swain here, and yes, I am behind the mic in San Francisco. Just a couple of things real quick, and uh, we'll get going. You know it, but I'm going to say it anyway. We've got a website, and won't you please grace us with your virtual presence? rockandrollarchaeology.com. That is R-O-C-K, letter N, R-O-L-L-A-R-C-H-A-E-O-L-O-G-Y.com. We've got the shows, the playlists, the show notes, social media links, our donate link with Patreon, or if you'd prefer PayPal, it's all right there. Please go check it out. And a quick plug for our sister podcasts. The Rock and Roll Librarian, where Shelley Sorensen and I discuss books that rock. Rock Talk with Peter Ferraioli, our weekly roundup of rock and roll news. Deeper Digs in Rock, single topic shows, interviews, and field trips. And The New Kid on the Block. This podcast kills fascists. Some of our favorite protest songs, both current and from the past, with that show. Please check them out and tell your friends. Thank you. You rock. We love you. And now, let's get to it. Right now, this is Episode 12, Machine Gun. November 26, 1942. Thanksgiving Day, stormy and cold in Seattle. After supper, Dorothy Harding checked in with Lucille Jeter Hendricks, just 17 years of age and very pregnant. Lucille had been staying with Dorothy for the last couple of months. Lucille's husband, Al Hendricks, was away in the U.S. Army. It was not known when he would or even if he would return to her and their unborn child. Lucille's family was on welfare, just scraping by and could not support another plate at the table. Dorothy Harding was best friend to Lucille's older sister, Dolores. Dorothy was just seven years older than Lucille, but already mother to three children, a tough, self-sufficient matriarch. Dorothy Harding was a black woman working in the Seattle shipyards at the time when very few blacks and even fewer women were employed there. Lucille's first child would call her Auntie Dorothy. Late in the evening, Lucille went into labor. At 10.15 the following morning, Friday, November 27th, she gave birth to Johnny Allen Hendricks. Lucille, Auntie Dorothy, and Lucille's older sister Dolores, all the women, agreed that he was just about the cutest baby ever. Auntie Dorothy started calling him Buster that very night, and before long, so did everybody else. There are only a few childhood pictures. They all show a handsome, almost pretty, little boy with a shy, almost somber demeanor. The best known is a snapshot of Lucille Hendricks seated with 11-week-old Buster in her lap. Lucille's young son shares his mother's soft, attractive features. Lucille's Mona Lisa smile is demure and modest, but her dark, intense stare into the camera hints at something else, something more. Lucille captioned the photo, This is the baby and I. Lucille 
was a famous trumpet man from all Chicago way. At the time of his birth, Buster's father, James Allen Hendricks, Al, was stationed at Fort Rucker, Alabama. From there, Al shipped out to the Pacific Theater. It took three months for that picture to catch up with him in the mail. Buster was three years old before he finally met his dad. When Al Hendricks got off a troop transport in Seattle in the fall of 1945, his toddler son was in Berkeley, California, in the care of a church friend of Lucille's mom, Mrs. Champ. It was two months before he headed south to retrieve his son. The Champs tried to talk Al into leaving Buster in their care. It was a stable-loving home, and the Champs had a daughter, Celestine, who doted on the boy. In later years, Buster would speak fondly of the warmness Celestine had shown him as a toddler. But Al Hendricks insisted. He scooped up his son and took him home to Seattle. You know I can be found Sitting home all alone If you can't come around At least please tell the phone Don't be cruel To who hard is true Sunday evening, September 1st, 1957. Buster was now James Marshall Hendricks. Al had his name legally changed when the boy was four. At five, little brother Leon came along. But the boys were separated numerous times when Al would put Leon in foster care. Johnny was now James, but he still answered to Buster. A shy, skinny teenager... Buster made his way alone up the hill behind the now-demolished Six Stadium, dressed in hand-me-downs, cardboard filling the holes in his shoes, about to start the ninth grade. Mom was gone, and Dad was a drunk and didn't give a shit. With little brother Leon in tow, Buster would go to Auntie Dorty's place for the home of one of his school friends just to get a real dinner. Sometimes he would scrape up a couple of dimes, and the boys would go to the Saturday matinee. That dashing galactic hero, Flash Gordon, was their favorite. In his 14 years, he had lived in a dozen different places, all of them run down and dirty. Al was a mean drunk, and Lucille was just a drunk. Their screaming, bitter arguments would often escalate to violence. Lucille would abandon the kids for weeks and even months at a time. In 1952, back when Buster was 10, Lucille filed for divorce, but that wasn't the end of it. Their relationship was a dark, boozy parade of betrayal and hurt. But just the same, Al and Lucille Hendricks shared an undeniable, powerful attraction to each other. They came together and fell apart several times over the next few years. In time, Lucille Hendricks remarried in January 1958 to a longshoreman 30 years her senior name of William Mitchell. But right now, forget all that noise. For an hour or so, alone on the hill, Buster escaped the abandonment, the betrayal, the hurt. Elvis was in town. Well, 
Buster watched Elvis Presley perform at Six Stadium before a shrieking crowd of 19,000 fans. He couldn't afford the $1.50 ticket, but he was a young man used to improvising, so the hill above the stadium was it. At that distance, the king was a tiny gold jacketed speck. Just the same, Buster was transfixed. When he started ninth grade a few days later, he decorated his notebook with a drawing of Elvis playing guitar, surrounded by the titles of his hit songs. That school year, Buster met his first girlfriend, Carmen Gowdy. Carmen was from a poor family, too, but her mom always sent her to school with a sandwich in a brown bag. At lunchtime, she would split that sandwich with her handsome, soft-spoken new boyfriend. Carmen's older sister was dating a man who played the guitar. Buster sat at his feet and took it in. For five bucks, he acquired a beat-up acoustic guitar with a warm neck, and he learned how to string it up lefty-style and started playing it. And Buster started to become Jimmy. Later that same school year, on February 1st, 1958, Lucille Hendricks Mitchell died. Although she had rallied in recent weeks, Overall, her health had been declining for some time. The coroner's report notes cirrhosis of the liver and adult-onset diabetes, but the immediate cause of death was internal bleeding from a ruptured spleen, an injury that is almost always the result of a violent blow to the abdomen. The exact cause of her death is probably lost to history. Al didn't attend the funeral, neither did the boys. They sat outside in his truck. Al offered the boys a shot of whiskey. The three Hendricks men drove home without saying goodbye to Lucille. And she slams the door in his trunk of face And now he stands outside And all the neighbors start to gossip and drool He cries, oh girl, you must be mad What happened to the sweet love you and me had? Against the door he leans and starts a scene And his tears fall and burn in garden green It took a year and a half of pleading and nagging But Al Hendricks finally relented in late 1958, he went and got 16-year-old Buster, his first electric guitar on time payments for Myers Music in Seattle. The guitar became his life, and his life became his guitar, wrote Charles Cross in Room Full of Mirrors, his 2005 biography of Jimi Hendrix. Cross's book and A Brother's Story by Leon Hendrix are the primary sources for our discussion. Leon Hendrix picks up the story. From around that time forward, I barely saw my brother pick up a pencil to draw, jog out onto a football field, or step onto a baseball diamond. He dropped all of his other interests because he finally found the thing he had been looking for his entire life. His guitar was going to allow him to express his deepest emotions and feelings he never talked about. He jammed with other guitarists, practiced and practiced, and gigged on weekends. He was a bright kid, but Buster was never a diligent student. Once he got his hands on a real guitar, well, that was it for school. He ended up flunking out in the fall of his junior year. Buster had repeated the ninth grade, so he was just shy of 18. 
Fine, he'd rather play music anyhow. And it's not like scrounging and hustling just to eat was anything new for him. He had a name around town as a flashy guitarist with crazy stage moves. He put together an outfit called the Rocking Kings. They gigged around Seattle and ventured out sometimes to neighboring towns. Let me tell you about a place Somewhere up a New York way Where the people are so gay Twisting the night away Here they have a lot of fun He had a favorite place to play. Half a day on the city bus, carrying his guitar to the Spanish castle in Kent, Washington. Buster played regularly at the castle with the Rocking Kings or just sitting in. He would immortalize the club in a song a few years later. In the spring of 1961, Buster got busted, joyriding in a stolen car. There'd been a couple other scrapes with the law, so the King County prosecutor offered defendant James Marshall Hendricks a stark choice, join the army or go to jail. A judge signed off on it, and on May 29, 1961, he took a train south to Fort Ord, California, to begin basic training. Upon finishing boot camp, Private Hendricks headed to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, for paratrooper training, an assignment to the 101st Airborne Division, the legendary Screaming Eagles. One cold, gray November day, another young black soldier, Pittsburgh native, name of Billy Cox, ducked under the eaves of the service club number two at Fort Campbell to get in out of the rain. Service club was the recreational center for the base, a small library, athletic gear, card tables, board games, and the like, and some amplifiers and some musical gear the soldiers could sign out and use. sound of somebody playing a mean guitar inside the club. So he went on in and found Private James Hendricks, plugged into one of the service club's loner amplifiers, practicing away on his electric guitar. Charles Cross, once again. Billy thought it a combination of Beethoven and John Lee Hooker, and was intrigued. This was a sound I had never heard before, Cox recalled. I went in and introduced myself to him. It was about that quick. Cox checked out a bass and began jamming with Jimmy. With that band, Cox and Hendricks immediately struck up a friendship that would be both professional and musical and would endure for nearly a decade. When I got there, I said, yeah, people. He barely lasted a year in the Army. He showed a bit of enthusiasm for soldiering at first, Jump school is no picnic, but Private Hendricks completed the course and received his Screaming Eagle patch. But then he met Billy, and the two of them quickly put together a band, the King Casuals. They started gigging on and off the base. 
By the spring of 1962, Jimmy's letters home to Al, to Leon, to his hometown sweetheart, Betty Jean Morgan, uh, those letters said a lot about music and not much about the Army. In later years, Jimi Hendrix would say that he was discharged for an ankle injury sustained during a practice jump. This is repeated in a lot of books and articles about him, but there is no documented support for it. If you remember the TV series MASH from the 1970s, then you kind of know the story. Private Hendrix pulled a corporal clinger. He refused to work, acted like a nut and a sexual deviant, and the army cut him loose. His company commander, Captain Gilbert Batchman, requested a psychiatric evaluation of Private Hendrix in February of 1962. In dry, bureaucratic language, Batchman's letters describe a chronic fuck-up, someone no longer interested in even pretending to be a soldier. This individual is unable to conform to military rules and regulations. Mrs. Bedchick sleeps while supposed to be working. Unsatisfactory duty performance. Requires excessive supervision at all times. Was caught masturbating by members of his platoon. Now, come on, a 19-year-old soldier masturbating in the barracks. That tradition dates back to Alexander the Great's army, if not earlier. But along with all the other crap, it was enough. Private James Hendricks was cut loose at the end of May with an undesirable discharge, unfit for military service. Billy Cox still had a few months to go on his enlistment, so Jimmy stayed close by until Billy could join him. Starting in the fall of 1962, Jimi Hendrix and Billy Cox started playing the blues and paying their dues on the Chitlin circuit. We'll come back to that story, but for now, let's step away for a bit. We've spent most of our time in England the last few episodes, so let's look around 1960s America again and get a feel for those times for the state of the nation. Eastern world, it is exploding, violence flaring, bullets loading. You're old enough to kill, but not for voting. You don't believe in war, boards that gun you're toting. And even the Jordan River has bodies floating, but you tell me. The song is Eve of Destruction, sung by one-hit wonder Barry Maguire. Uh, Perhaps the simplicity of it was also the appeal of it. Eh, nah, forget it. It it was dumbed down and dumb as hell. And that's why it caught on and went big, all the way to number one on the pop charts by the summer of 1965. The aesthetic merits of this song, or lack thereof, notwithstanding, Eve of Destruction does absorb the events of its time, even if it does so with clunky cadences and clumsy rhymes. Eve was strident and bitter, its references bluntly topical. No precedent for that, not even in Bob Dylan's allegorical Blowing in the Wind. Its structure came from folk, simple guitar strum, repeated refrain, forced rhymes. With an off-balance rhythm, it wasn't much to dance to. 
It brooded. That's from the 1994 book, The Sixties, Years of Hope, Days of Rage, by Todd Gitlin, a professor at Columbia University. Professor Gitlin is an activist turned academic. He served as president of Students for the Democratic Society in 63 and 64, and he organized some of the first student demonstrations against the Vietnam War. Those early demonstrations didn't get much traction, but it wouldn't be long before they did. While Eve of Destruction clunked and wheezed its way to the top of the charts, America started deploying combat troops on a large scale to South Vietnam. U.S. Marines landed in force in early 65 at Da Nang to guard American facilities. Before long, these Marines started patrolling and engaging the North Vietnamese Army and their insurgent allies in the South, the Viet Cong. A few months later, elements of Jimmy's former Army unit, the 101st Airborne Division, deployed to South Vietnam. Lieutenant Philip Caputo was one of those Marines who landed at Da Nang in early 1965. This is from the introduction of his 1977 book, A Rumor of War. The discovery that the men we had scorned as peasant guerrillas were in fact a lethal determined enemy, and the casual list that lengthened each week with nothing to show for it broke our early confidence. By autumn, what had begun as an adventurous expedition had turned into an exhausting, indecisive war of attrition in which we fought for no cause other than our own survival. Fighting soldiers from the sky Fearless men who jump and die Men who mean just what they say the brave men of the Green Beret Silver wings upon their chest These are men America The number one song in America in 1966, according to the Billboard Pop Charts, Ballad of the Green Beret, was mainstream culture's corny response to the equally corny Eve of Destruction. While it might have been satisfying to Vietnam War supporters to watch it sail up the charts, the feel-good patriotism of Green Berets didn't last long. By the middle of 1966, 400,000 American troops were in Vietnam. More were arriving each day. And every month, a fresh batch of draft notices arrived in mailboxes across America. In 1966, according to the Selective Services Archives, there were over 380,000 inductions. Over a quarter million were drafted in 67, and every year after that, right on through to 1971. Getting drafted was now much more than a nuisance or inconvenience. It was life and death. American casualties more than tripled compared to the previous year. Over 6,000 American service members died in Vietnam in 1966, and it was about to get a whole lot worse. Vietnam War historians call 1966 the year of the Great Escalation. Not coincidentally, it was also the year the anti-war counterculture in America had its own Great Escalation. 
opposition to the Vietnam War was no longer a boutique issue pursued by leftist students and their limousine liberal allies in Manhattan and San Francisco. It had become mainstream political thought. Public opinion research about Vietnam, as tracked by the Gallup polling organization, firmly backs up this assertion. As 1966 began, a solid majority of Americans supported the war. Perhaps reluctantly, but they supported it. By the end of the year, a majority was in opposition, and that trend was picking up speed. The personal disillusionment Lieutenant Philip Caputo experienced in Vietnam during 1965, the following year, that disillusionment was written large all across America. As for Eve of Destruction, it might have been a second-rate knockoff, uh, Bob Dylan for dummies, but it won the battle for the hearts and minds of the baby boomers in America. The crude caricatures sketched out by these two otherwise forgettable songs are stand-ins for America's ongoing culture war. It's a war that flared up hot and bright in the mid-60s, and it's still being fought today. It has ebbed and flowed across five decades all the way up to this very moment. In this corner, humble, devout, and patriotic, we have the real Americans. And in the opposite corner, the challenger, loud, irreverent, and subversive, the dirty fucking hippies. Defense Secretary McNamara says the military will now begin taking each year 100,000 men who are not qualified for military service. The total crowd that the dance was in excess of 3,000, including a number of less than college whatever is wrong with Men rejected for reasons of education. Three rock and roll bands were in the center of the gymnasium playing simultaneously all during the dance. And all during the dance, the military post and given whatever movies were shown on two screens at the opposite ends of the gymnasium. These movies were the only lights in the gym proper. They consisted of color sequences that gave the appearance of different colored liquids spreading across the screen. Faced with an escalating conflict that was straining the military, especially the U.S. Army, to the breaking point, Defense Secretary Robert McNamara introduced something called Project 100,000 at a speech before a veterans group. By lowering, or just outright eliminating, educational and physical fitness standards, thousands of young men from disadvantaged backgrounds would get an opportunity to turn their lives around. Now, so the reasoning went anyway. The Army would catch them up by providing education, health care, and three hots and a cot. It also would provide them, in vastly disproportionate numbers, with an opportunity to get maimed or killed in Vietnam. It became necessary to destroy the town to save it. That now famous quote was from an unnamed U.S. Army major 
in a story by Peter Arnett about a battle near the village of Ben Tre, South Vietnam, published in the New York Times in early 1968. It mirrors the twisted rationale of the 100,000-man project. This bizarre hup is down, wrong is right kind of logic pretty much defines America's Vietnam experience. Marine, what is that button on your body armor? A peace symbol, sir. Where'd you get it? I don't remember, sir. What is that you've got written on your helmet? Born to kill, sir. You write born to kill on your helmet and you wear a peace button. What's that supposed to be, some kind of sick joke? No, sir. What is it supposed to mean? I don't know, sir. You don't know very much, do you? No, sir. You better get your head and your ass wired together or I will take a giant shit on you. Yes, sir. Now answer my question or you'll be standing tall before the man. I think I was trying to suggest something about the duality of man, sir. The what? The duality of man, the Jungian thing, sir. As 1966 turned to 1967 in America, an awful realization was setting in. Vietnam was exactly what Neil Sheehan called it years later. A bright, shining lie. In Vietnam, the contradictions, the rationalizations had gone from absurd to obscene. We will bring peace by waging war. We will destroy the village to save it. Back in the States, more absurdity, more obscenity. Without a hint of irony or self-awareness, our leaders tell us we shall help America's poor by sending them off to fight a war. Nobody's right if everybody's wrong. There's something happening here But what it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down So while two wars escalated, one overseas and one right here at home, rock music started to absorb and to reflect those events and influence these events. Young people speak in their minds. We will have more to say about the Vietnam War and the protest movement it inspired as we go forward. We bring it up in this episode because then and now overseas and back home, the music of Jimi Hendrix is the soundtrack for the Vietnam War. We're not the first to say that, but it is a bit strange and more than a little bit ironic. Jimi was not overtly political. He wrote no protest songs, never played at an anti-war rally. When he did make references to Vietnam in song, talking on stage and interviews with the press... He was opaque, nonspecific. He would typically just speak in general terms of the need for peace and understanding. And yet his music seems to embody the conflict. Probably a lot of reasons for that. But we'll state the obvious one. Sometimes 
It just sounds like a war. The screaming dive bomber swoops with the whammy bar. The rat-a-tat-tat machine gun chinks. He scratched out as a rhythm. For a soldier patrolling the bush, or a hippie marching in Berkeley, it just seemed to fit. It told the story. All right, let's check back in with Jimmy. We left him in Tennessee in the fall of 1962. From there, Jimmy would spend the next four years becoming an overnight sensation. It started on the Chitlin circuit. Just about every notable African-American musician from the 50s and 60s played these segregated blacks-only nightclubs and bars throughout the South. We talked about the circuit in earlier episodes when we met Ray Charles, Little Richard, and James Brown. Those guys were born to it, though. They grew up in the South and knew all too well the ways of Jim Crow. They knew that you traveled in groups, always. That you couldn't sit in the restaurant. You had to get your food to go at the kitchen door. Drinking fountains, public restrooms, parks and rest stops along the highway. Forget it. Whites only. Ray and Little Richard and James Brown had internalized all the cagey, clever tricks a black man in the South needed to know to get by, to stay out of trouble, to survive another day. Jimi Hendrix grew up in the Pacific Northwest. There was institutional racism in Seattle in those days, especially when it came to employment and housing, but... It wasn't the savage, overt racism that defined daily life in the American South. It was an adjustment for Jimmy, and not an easy or a pleasant one. Jimmy played a residency in Nashville, did sessions at Stax Records in Memphis, where he met Steve Cropper, guitarist for Booker T and the MGs, the house band at Stax. That cut we just played, Cross Cut Saw, from 1966, features the MGs backing up one of Jimmy's favorite guitarists, Albert King. The other King from Memphis, B.B. King, that soulful string bender, was another big influence. In his early days on the circuit, Jimmy very consciously imitated B.B. King's spare phrasing and deep, wide vibrato. Another favorite of Jimmy's from those years is one of our favorites, too, Buddy Guy, yet another of the great Chicago bluesmen who recorded on Chess Records. As we write this in early 2017, Buddy is in his 80s, still playing, and he is still a badass. Buddy Guy toured the UK in 65. That was when he plugged his favorite guitar, the Fender Stratocaster, into one of these powerful new amplifiers being built by Jim Marshall in London. We think it's safe to speculate that perhaps James Marshall Hendricks took notice of that. Jimmy, who billed himself as Maurice James, spent 64 and 65 shuttling between New York and Nashville. He gigged and toured constantly and practiced almost every waking minute. Around Nashville, the other musicians called him Marbles, as in a guy who's lost his marbles. He earned the nickname with his constant obsessive practicing. He would talk to his guitar, fall asleep practicing, 
At club shows, he would sit on stage and play solos during breaks, working things out on the guitar while the rest of the band drank and chased women. Billy Cox would later say that Jimmy crammed a couple decades' worth of experience into that four-year period. You know you make me wanna kick my heels up and down did a ton of tours as a backing guitarist, most notably with the Isley Brothers. The Isleys dug Jimmy's plane. They even gave him a featured spot in the show, a call-and-response bit where the brothers would sing a line and Jimmy would play it back on the guitar. The Isley Brothers tour took a West Coast swing in the spring of 64. Jimmy's guitar got stolen in Seattle and he blew off the next show. When he caught up with them again in New York a week later, the Isleys were furious but they kept him on. But a few months later, while on tour in Georgia, the Isleys, who just signed a contract with Atlantic Records, the Isley brothers fired Jimi Hendrix. For a couple of weeks, he backed one of his boyhood heroes, Little Richard, until Little Richard fired Jimi Hendrix. And he backed yet another favorite of ours, someone who, in Jimmy's own telling, was a mentor, one of his biggest influences, Curtis Mayfield, until Curtis Mayfield fired Jimi Hendrix. Mercy Mercy by Don Covey, released on Atlantic in late 64. That spiffy little guitar intro is played by a young Jimi Hendrix. It's the first song Jimi played on that actually went somewhere. It hit number 35 on the pop charts. That fluid cosmic blues lick is just a few bars, but it drops some big hints. We hear plenty of Curtis Mayfield's influence. It's the earliest recording we've unearthed that really shows Jimi Hendrix becoming Jimi Hendrix. Jimi didn't really notice the chart success of Mercy Mercy. Jimi recorded the track, wrote back home about it, and was set to tour with Don Covey. Until Don Covey fired Jimi Hendrix. He might have had a flaky work record, but talent won through. In 1965, Jimmy worked his way up and off the Chitlin circuit. Late in the year, he signed on for a major tour with an outfit called Joey D and the Starlighters, 58 shows in 60 nights. Joey had a big hit a couple of years back with the Peppermint Twist, so he was booked into major venues around the country. Starlighters were a racially integrated band, something still highly uncommon in those days. Charles Cross again. 
The Starlighters played to crowds as large as 10,000, the biggest Jimmy had yet seen. Still, because of the racial tension caused by the mixed band, in many venues, the musicians were not allowed to leave the backstage area during set breaks. Perhaps because of their shared burden of prejudice, the Starlighters were a close band, and Jimmy quickly ingratiated himself. He was really shy at first, recalled member David Brigatti, but he opened up and told wild stories of being on the road with the Isleys and Little Richard. Jimmy also told a tale about touring with James Brown, and how on one occasion when he interrupted the Godfather of Soul, Brown punched him and fired him. So Jimmy played with James Brown. Until James Brown fired Jimi Hendrix. In early 1966, Jimmy cleared out his little pad in Nashville, grabbed his guitar and a single bag, and hopped a Greyhound back to New York City. The previous year, he had paid the toughest dues of his life, working for peanuts, crashing on couches, pawning his guitar just to eat. From exposure to other good players, and from sheer determination, he had acquired an astonishing virtuosity on the guitar. Backing up the likes of Little Richard and James Brown, he also picked up plenty of flashy stage moves. 1966 would be the year it all happened for him, he told his friends and family. He dreamed it. Dreamed it in beautiful colors, he told Fane Pigeon, his Harlem girlfriend. Every day in the week, I'm in the arrived in London Saturday morning, September 24th, 1966, a couple of months shy of his 24th birthday. Crammed in his guitar case, the Stratocaster, his hair curlers, a jar of Alderma acne cream, and a single change of clothes. He had 40 bucks in his pocket. Someone else carried his case through customs. Jimmy's new manager, Chaz Chandler, didn't want to create the impression Jimmy was coming to the United Kingdom to work. Jimmy entered the country on a seven-day tourist visa pending approval of a work permit. Getting that work permit required some subterfuge from Chandler and his partner, Michael Jeffrey. We will meet Chaz Chandler in a bit. As for Jeffrey... He was short in stature, but nonetheless more than a little bit menacing. He rarely spoke above a whisper, was never without his sunglasses, and always wearing a camel hair coat. Michael Jeffrey was rumored to have once been a British intelligence agent. It might have been true. Michael Jeffrey ended up ripping Jimmy off. Exactly how much he skimmed will probably never be known. But it was an immense sum. Millions. But that came later. That first week, he did the job for Jimmy in London. He generated some forged documents, spread some money around, and got Jimi Hendrix, an American guitarist, a proper work permit for the United Kingdom. Sad, you 
skeptical of the whole notion of overnight sensation. There are some legitimate overnight success stories in rock music, but most of them fall apart quickly on close examination. As we noted earlier, Jimmy spent four tough years grinding out gigs as a sideman, living hand-to-mouth, barely scraping by. Still in all, Jimmy's first 24 hours in London were pretty amazing. He had been a nobody in America, but in England he was an actual, no kidding, overnight sensation. From the airport, Chaz took Jimmy to the home of Zoot Money, a quirky, interesting fellow who played keyboards for the animals and a bunch of other groups. Zoot's place was a crash pad for London musicians and London music scenesters. It wasn't long before Jimmy grabbed a guitar and started playing right there in Zoot's living room. A small but rapt audience quickly gathered. Among them, a teenage kid named Andy Summers, who would go on to fame years later as the guitarist for the police. Andy was the first of legions of Great Britain's guitar players to be awed and dazed by Jimmy, writes Charles Cross. Etchingham, a pretty brown-eyed hairdresser who DJed in the evenings, was crashing upstairs at Zoot's. Kathy didn't meet Jimmy right then and there. That happened later in the evening. But she heard the other girls gossiping about the tall, dark, and handsome American who played unbelievable guitar. Chaz took Jimmy down to the Scotch of St. James Club in Soho, a popular musician's hangout. Charles Cross picks up the story. Eric Burden of The Animals was one of many musicians at the club that night. It was haunting how good he was, Burden said. You just stopped and watched. Playing blues standards with his gimmickry included, Jimmy immediately managed to wow the crowd. Jazz got worried. He didn't want it to look like Jimmy was working, even if he was just sitting in. So he yanked Jimmy off the stage and asked Kathy to make sure he got back to the hotel. On Sunday morning, September 25th, 1966, Jimi Hendrix awoke for the first time in London. Over the last 24 hours, he had been granted entry to a new land, created a sensation on the music scene there, and found himself a new girlfriend and a nice place to stay. In one day, 
wrote Charles Cross, Jimmy's life had been permanently recast. Chitlin circuit, there was a thing called head cutting. Head cutting meant you showed up, took the stage, and blew the house guitarist out to go over the show. It was a hustle. The baddest head cutter would get the choicest gigs, the prettiest women. In his first try at head cutting, and Jimmy was the one who got cut. A Nashville cat named of Johnny Jones burned him down that night. He was deeply humiliated, and he made damn sure it was the last time anyone cut Jimi Hendrix. He almost always spoke softly, and often would come across as shy. But once he strapped on and powered up, (laughs) Jimi Hendrix did not fuck around. A lot of guitarists, like Pete Townsend, if you recall our last episode, would get the feeling Jimi was playing at them rather than to them. It was a thing with Jimmy. He was fierce about it. Like the bluesmen he admired the most out on the circuit, Buddy Guy, Albert and B.B. King, John Lee Hooker and Muddy Waters, Jimmy was a head cutter from way back. That aw shucks, soft-spoken thing he did was authentic. It was a reflection of who he was, but he also made it work for him as part of his head-cutting bit, kind of uh, like a pool hustler or a card sharp luring in his prey. Months leading up to London, Jimmy worked as a sideband in the Harlem clubs, mostly with Curtis Knight and the Squires. But at the urging of John Hammond Jr. and Richie Havens, he started his own group, Jimmy James and the Blue Flames, and took the act downtown to the Greenwich Village clubs. The pay was crap, even worse than the clubs in Harlem, but the Bohemian kids in the village were an easier audience, much more open to something new, Something unexpected. The Blue Flames did the Chicago Blues by way of Harlem Funk, by way of Greenwich Village Folk. And it was happening. People were talking about it. He built a small but loyal following. They were playing the village at the Café Wa, 
when a young English woman named Linda Keith stopped in with some friends for a drink. Linda was young, attractive, and she was dating Keith Richards. She was quick and bright, and her Rolling Stone boyfriend was one of her many acquaintances in the upper tiers of the rock and roll business. Linda was a deep fan of the blues, something of a scholar, and she had a superb record collection. Back at her place, she put on some choice sides for Jimmy. She also had a copy of Bob Dylan's newest release, Blonde on Blonde. Jimmy hadn't yet heard the new album from his hero, from his biggest inspiration. Dylan biographer Robert Shelton, remember him from episode 5, wrote this about Blonde on Blonde. There's a remarkable marriage of funky, bluesy rock expressionism and rimbaud-like visions of discontinuity, chaos, emptiness, and loss. Funky, bluesy rock expressionism, discontinuity, chaos, emptiness, and loss. Jimmy was familiar with those things. From the first time he heard Dylan a couple years back, and Jimmy felt the bard speaking especially to him, expressing for him things he had not yet found a way to express. As she pulled out her copy of Blonde on Blonde, Linda posed a question. Would you like to take some acid? No, he replied, but I'm really interested in trying some of that LSD. (laughs) Linda lit a candle and dropped the needle. They were up all night, tripping, listening, laughing, and talking. They would become lovers, but that first night together was a chaste evening. I was a middle-class girl with middle-class values, and I already had a boyfriend, Linda would tell an interviewer years later, which probably made it all the more special. Linda Keith, Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde, and LSD. The elements fused to form a compound, punishing volume psychedelic fireworks and chitlin circuit showmanship, make it bluesy and tough raw and sexual, but add some poetic reflection inspired by Bob Dylan. We think it happened, in large part, because Jimmy was an autodidact, completely self-taught. He didn't know any of the rules, so he didn't know he was breaking any of them. He just went and did it. That's when the door of the universe swung wide open for Jimi Hendrix. Once upon a time, you dressed so fine Through the bumps of diamond in your prime Oh, didn't you? People call, save a word, dog You're bound to fall, you thought they all Well, couldn't you? You used to laugh about Chaz Chandler played bass guitar for The Animals, one of the biggest rock bands in the world in 1966. By his own telling, Chaz was a musician of modest talents who had locked into a good situation. He was no dummy, though, and in the fall of 66, it dawned on him there was money to be made in talent management, if you found the right talent. In early August, Linda ran into Chaz on a sidewalk in the village. They weren't really friends, just acquaintances. 
but Linda convinced him to come to the Café Wa and hear this amazing guitarist. Chaz had recently heard a song by Tim Rose called Hey Joe, and he was convinced that the right artist could make it a smash. As fate would have it, Jimmy had recently heard it too, and Hey Joe was part of the Blue Flames set that afternoon. first head he cut was a big one. Back in New York, Jimmy had told Chaz, I'll go on one condition. You got a promise to introduce me to Eric Clapton. I'm such a huge fan. So on October 1st, Chaz took him to see Clapton's new act, Cream, the talk of the London scene. This is around the time of all that Clapton his God graffiti was decorating the subway walls around London. Chaz approached Eric and asked if Jimmy could sit in with Cream, England's best rock band, with Eric Clapton, the guy they call God, on guitar. The guys were a bit nonplussed. Uh, folks didn't just walk up and ask to jam with Cream, but Eric liked Chaz, so he agreed. And Jimmy plugged into a spare channel on Jack Bruce's bass amp, and then he proceeded to cut Eric Clapton's head. Eight days off the plane, Jimi Hendrix gets on stage with God and burns him down. It's very much to Eric Clapton's credit that he didn't mind getting his head cut by Jimi Hendrix. He accepted it graciously, and that very evening, Eric and Jimi began a real friendship based on respect and mutual admiration. to say about Jimi Hendrix, his music, his legacy, his enormous influence in later episodes. But today, we will leave Jimi right here in London, about to turn 24 and on the cusp of stardom. Just one final comment before we close it out. The story of Jimi Hendrix consists of one part triumph and two parts tragedy. We all know that he died, tragically and accidentally, almost exactly four years later in 1970, just a few weeks shy of his 28th birthday. He would experience highs most of us can only imagine. Fame, money, sex, the admiration of his musical peers. 
things Jimmy himself probably never imagined. But, as best as we can tell, only a couple of Jimmy's 27 years on Earth were truly happy ones. And that's why we want to leave it right here, at liftoff, at the beginning of the one happy chapter in his life. As a child and a teen, he endured poverty, neglect, and abuse at the hands of his father. He washed out of the army under humiliating circumstances. As a young adult building a career in music, he was misunderstood, fired repeatedly, pushed around, and ripped off. Yet, he persevered and made it big. At the time of his death, he was the biggest selling, highest paid live artist in the world and had been for two solid years. But to us, it seems like the rock superstar Jimi Hendrix, for all his astonishing talent, for all the fame and accolades, never really stopped being Buster, that impoverished, lonely, hurt little boy from Seattle. Given the chance, he probably would have done what most adults with shitty dysfunctional backgrounds do. He would have worked through it and come out stronger on the other side. But he never got that chance. He never got the chance to truly enjoy the fruits of his success. Those last two years of his life, he was overworked, stressed out, and miserable. Deep in debt, facing lawsuits, trapped in bad contracts, stuck on the treadmill, and old beyond his years from all the pressure. Like most every rock fan, we listen to Jimi Hendrix and we catch the thrill. We sit back, awestruck by talent that sounds and feels supernatural. We're moved by the pathos, by the raw emotion of his playing and singing. Those emotions from his music become even more poignant when we consider the missed chances in his life. In the end, the story of Jimi Hendrix is a sad story, made even sadder because it's not all that unusual. The star maker machinery exacts a heavy toll. Christian Swain, and this is the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast. Thanks for listening, and as always, keep up the rockin'. Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. The Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast is produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Written by Richard Evans and Christian Swain. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. 
Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 